try to get in conversation a union grad worker from Alabama uh, with a uh, with one of the striking workers from Rutgers uh, but it wasn't we weren't able to make the uh, get the schedules to mesh but I think we're going to be able to do it for the next show however we do that uh, maybe probably pre-taping it um, but uh, so be looking forward to that next weekend but we do want to go ahead and bring you this news and uh, that is that after a th- after a five day strike, I believe it was, that included pictures of uh, frat boys, uh, <laughs> frat bros supporting the strike. Uh, it is now uh, it has been called off. They're returning to work on Monday after a tentative agreement that uh, they're going to continue ironing out some of the details. That so they they called it a quote tentative framework. They're going to go ahead and go back to work on Monday while they iron out the final details. But it includes a 48% pay increase for adjunct faculty by 2025, a 33% increase for TAs and GAs, and a $40,000 salary for them in uh, 2025, uh, presumptively renewable contracts, job security for adjunct faculty, and protection against caste discrimination. This is from Rebecca Given, president of one of the unions that were involved in the strike. Uh, the strike involved, I think, three unions at Rutgers. Also involved in the, also, uh, in the strike, the construction workers' unions refused to cross the picket lines and did not continue working on construction projects while the strike was going on. So really, really cool stuff. And we've got a couple of videos here to show you the energy that was present during some of these strike demonstrations. Let's play the first one, Adam.
pretty cool. And if you're just listening to the audio, I think the audio enough is is you know really cool to listen to. But uh, if, if the visuals are amazing too, I mean, hundreds of people you know coming together, just super happy. Um, you know, you can tell they're like gearing up to win. Um, and that energy is is in is the same in the second clip. Let's go ahead and play that. So I really love enjoy- it. yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. That was really cool. I enjoyed seeing those on Twitter. Yeah, and uh solidarity to the Rutgers workers and you know, shout out for fighting this uh, courageous fight. I know the administration has uh been less than pleasant to deal mm-hmm. with. Uh I think that's putting it mildly, but you know, y'all have have been persevering and it looks like it's going to pay off so yeah, that's I would say so nearly a 50 percent wage increase in one year yeah um, yeah and you know i think it's important that this wave of organizing continue to spread from campus to campus mm-hmm. across the country uh there's so many folks in academia that are working uh at poverty wages who are struggling to make ends meet you know, these are folks that uh, are doing important work and are working with students or people who are students who are trying to better themselves and their communities. You know, it, it's time to it's time to treat these folks right. And, uh, you know, let's let's hope that what happened at Rutgers can continue to spread. Absolutely. And that's one of the somebody somebody else mentioned this on Twitter and I can't remember who it was, but that probably. You know, just the the direct impacts of the strike are huge, you know, Mm -hmm. for these people immediately, these huge raises and uh, job security. That's really, really big. But also, you know, for most of these people, these graduate workers, this is temporary employment. They're not going to be here but for another two or three or four, maybe five years. And then they're going to go out into other workplaces having known the value that unions bring. That right. being a part of a union uh, is so important, and it and you can win, and they have that knowledge going out, and so these are so each one of these people are hopefully going to be seeds in all the other workplaces that they go to right. uh, throughout their spreading career. the good news. So, yeah. and you know, I think that's uh, that's really cool to see folks experiencing the power of solidarity. And uh, yeah, I think that translates. I think it it won't just stay at Rutgers. Those folks yep. will will circulate throughout the country, and they're going to bring that experience and that uh, feeling that they had. They're going to bring that with mm-hmm. them, and you know who knows where that'll lead. But it's exciting, and it's it's great to see some victories. Right. Uh, it's easy to get dispirited sometimes in our movement because we are facing so much, and the you know the task in front of us is so are so monumental, but. There, there we go. You know, great job by Rutgers uh, faculty and staff fighting the good fight. Yeah, absolutely. Vex the cat in the chat says, "If you cross the picket line, that's a party foul." <laughs> right. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. 
And oh, and uh, I, I saw Vonda McDaniel in the chat. Happy A. Philip Randolph birthday. That's very cool. I didn't nice. realize that it was A. Philip Randolph's birthday. Nice. Uh, I just happened to see a tweet of hers on um, on Twitter uh, where she had shared an article about code switching uh, in reference to Justin Pearson, um, the uh, Tennessee lawmaker who people have been pretending to be angry about because he has, you know, uh, he has a preacher voice in his speeches now, um, whereas they say that he didn't in a campaign video for student government president seven years ago when he was a kid. <laughs> when I he mean... was a kid, and but but also, I mean, they are different contexts, right? You're running yes. for student government president, and you're in an ad. It's not like you're doing a speech. You're just in an ad speaking, and that's a different context. And you know, the the people that are pretending to be upset about that. Is is just wild, especially to me coming from a a white Pentecostal tradition where the the preacher voice phenomenon was well known. I mean, it was so well known that it would be commented upon, like, oh, the you know, because because it would sometimes take a while for them to transition. You know, right? They, they got to get warmed up. Yeah, sometimes. they got to get warmed up, and so you know, <laughs> so brother Ricky would come to the pulpit and he's starting to talk like in his normal voice, and then he starts getting louder and then louder, and then you know, you'd hear, oh, the preachers come, you know, the preachers here now, and uh, you know, and so the idea, I you know. The people pretending that it's disingenuous to have uh, different rhetoric in different situations is, is was very, very. Uh... Yeah, it's like I told you yesterday when you mentioned this to me, like just because you don't have that talent <laughs> doesn't mean other people don't <laughs> just because uh, you can't imagine that uh, doesn't mean other people can't. Right. Uh, and, you know, there's also a lot of manufactured outrage in this society. Uh, commenting on the Rutgers strike, Alex in the chat says, In the mid-2010s, I tried to live in Boston as a grad student. The stipend they paid me covered half my rent and basic groceries and expenses. Very little was left. Uh, I didn't know you were supposed to be independently wealthy. <laughs> right. Indeed. and that's... I mean, that's one of the problems, right? That's one right. of the issues is that yeah, for so many of these positions in the upper crust of society, you have to have been independently wealthy, you know? Uh, right. And that's the way, you know, class hierarchy repeats itself. And that's right. the way these institutions kind of gatekeep out uh, working class people. And, you know, that's why these labor struggles in university campuses is so important right? because they, these are workers involved. Uh, I know it's uh, not may maybe the traditional terrain of a labor struggle. Right. It's not a factory floor. Uh, but there, there are workers involved. And the more these workers can get paid a living wage the more they can have benefits that are actual actually respectable and right. can make a living and a decent living doing this you know that's what's important so we can have diversity in in these institutions as well uh yeah because it shouldn't be just the independently wealthy it shouldn't be folks who are coming from uh well-off families to you know that shouldn't be a requirement to pursue your dreams right Exactly. Exactly. Um, so we've got another uh, episode that shows, you know, the benefits of unionization and, you know, not as uh, celebratory of a manner, but it is still helpful and it is still uh, worth repeating. Um, and that is uh, uh, Luis Leon from uh, Labor Notes shared this on Twitter that uh, Tyson is laying off 1,600 poultry workers across Virginia and Arkansas. In Virginia, 
the workers are represented by UFCW Local 400. They will get a severance package, vacation payouts, and health insurance. By contrast, Tyson workers in Arkansas say that they won't get either. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, same company, exact same company, same type of work being done, uh, you know, and I can't imagine the standard of living where it is in Virginia and where it is in Arkansas are, is, you know, all that different and just totally, di- uh, totally different treatment of these workers as they're being laid off uh, by the same company in, in two different contexts. One where they have a collective bargaining agreement that lays out conditions for laying people off and one in where the workers don't have that. And we've seen, uh, you know, we're seeing the, um, the effects of that. Um, Luis said that they went on strike a couple of days ago. Over this, uh, they are working with the worker center Vince Ramos. Uh, we actually had uh, one of the organizers from the worker center on the show to talk about Tyson workers. Uh, it may be two years ago now that we had them on the show, uh, but I do remember that organization and the work that they were doing organizing Tyson workers over in Arkansas. And so, you know, all solidarity to them. And here's hoping that they can extract some concessions from this company, because the idea that you would, you know, the the idea that you would do this without, you know, lay them off high and, and leave them high and dry in a situation where, you know, these people are sacrificing a lot for your company. You know, being a being a poultry worker is not an easy job. And the idea that they're not getting severance, they're not getting vacation payouts, they're not being able they're not going to be able to continue their health insurance after they get laid off for some number of months. It's just really gross, especially when the company uh has the capacity to do that and has demonstrated the capacity to do that. It's just uh, really disgusting behavior from this corporation. So all solidarity to them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, unfortunately, not particularly surprising when it comes to Tyson. Uh, but, you know, that's that's kind of been their behavior. And we've seen some of their disgusting behavior throughout this, like, uh, post-pandemic era or, you know, during the pandemic and in the, in the years since then. Uh, we've seen their monopoly grow. We've seen their prices skyrocket, uh, and we've seen some of the the ways they've treat their workers. Mm-hmm. So it's you know, and and that's one of the reasons why unions are important, right? Not every employer has your best interest at heart. In fact, right. I would say most of them probably don't. Um, and even the best of employers, you still could benefit from a union and the protection it provides. The collective organization it provides and this is a a key example even when things go totally south and the company is closing or the the facility is closing having a union there Mm -hmm. can make all the difference in the world in the way that plays out absolutely and that's not to suggest that it always plays out well with a union Right. right sometimes our unions aren't strong enough to secure uh you know the best severance package possible Uh, And, you know, that's that's an issue that we have to deal with. And we have to be prepared in our unions for these kind of scenarios. Sometimes our facilities will close and people will lose jobs and we have to be Mm -hmm. ready for those moments and prepared to to make the best of it for our members. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, 
So we're going to just continue on with the good news and the benefits of uh, showing the benefits of unionization with another story uh, recently. This one out of Kentucky. Um, Teamsters Local 89 Cisco drivers voted by 98% to ratify a new contract from the company, bringing a 13-day strike to an end and establishing their first collective bargaining agreement. Wow. Uh, yeah, very, very cool. Uh, reading from the press release that uh, Local 89 um, sent out at the end of the strike, they voted, uh, the workers in local voted to join Local 89 in 2022 uh, amid, you know, a lot of uh, uh, typical concerns, wages, benefits, safety, a desire to end excruciatingly long and arduous work hours. Um, and in early March, the drivers rejected a, quote, last, best, and final from the company because it didn't adequately address those concerns. And then they began a strike 13 days ago. Um, they also extended their picket line to a Cisco facility in Los Angeles, California for two days last week, which is interesting. I didn't realize that. And um, the thing that the, – <laughs> what they won is very, very impressive, it seems to me. So, for, again, from their press release, delivery driver pay will immediately increase by four thirty-five dollars an hour. That's great. $4.35 an hour, immediate increase. Shuttle drivers will see an increase of $5.35 an hour to catch them up. Both groups will increase by another $3.50 by the end of the five-year agreement, averaging a 34.5% increase over the life of the contract. Um, so the that immediate raise is the more impressive thing to me. 350 over four years seems like maybe they could have done a little bit better than that, but, you know, uh, better than they had uh, currently, certainly. Uh, and also, this is huge, their previous healthcare plan had drivers paying 50% of their insurance premiums, and that has now been reduced to just 20%. Yes, that's, that, that is huge. Absolutely huge. And in addition to that, there are uh, several other things like they have sick days now where apparently they didn't have before. They have additional equipment. They have additional safety language. And uh, one of the most important changes, according to Local 89, is the staffing. Drivers routinely worked 16-hour shifts, which Oof. took a heavy... Yeah, well, you would know about that, right? <laughs> After an 18-hour shift yesterday. Was it eight, yesterday? Last weekend, yeah. Last that's weekend. why I wasn't okay. on the show last Saturday. Yeah. Um, and so you know that uh, working 16 or 18-hour shifts take a heavy physical and mental toll. It sure does, and I wouldn't <laughs> want to be behind the wheel of, right. a, of a large vehicle like that. Um, you know, it's concerning even for mm -hmm. me just driving home late in the evening after a long yeah. shift. And so uh, to think that these folks are out there behind the wheel for the 16 time, hours yeah. is just uh, it's not right. Yeah, and uh, they mentioned that that often put them behind the wheel when they were dangerously exhausted. And so as part of the new contract, Cisco Louisville must now hire nine additional delivery drivers and maintain a new minimum staffing number of 96. Anytime there are fewer than 96 delivery drivers, Cisco will be required to pay double time for all time worked in excess of 13 hours a day. Heck yeah. This double time pre uh, penalty will ensure that Cisco Louisville will be hard at work trying 
trying to keep their staffing high, which in turn will provide drivers with much needed overtime relief and allow them to spend more time at home with their loved ones. This is just, this is really, really crucial stuff here. Um, yeah, and, I'd love to see them addressing staffing in the And immediately, and I always hear what, you know, Adam, this is kind of confusing to me now because I always hear that uh, when you have a union and you raise wages, you actually cut jobs. But here, they're raising their wages immediately by between 4 and $5 an hour, and then they're getting not, they're, they've created nine more jobs. Right. You know, Mark Wayne Mullen was was trying to to uh, you know attack Sean O'Brien, saying, "Have you ever created a job?" Well, here's nine jobs that the Teamsters just created. Yeah. Immediately. Like, just as a matter of fact, that's what has happened. There are nine more drivers. Uh, that's nine more people who can be employed and now benefit from this contract. And you know, the reduced health insurance premiums and the increased pay per hour. That's huge. Uh, and it's going to it's going to relieve the working conditions of the folks on staff. And that, that's what I really like to see. I mean, uh, because I think a lot of times, you know, as workers, yes, pay is important and benefits are important. But our working conditions is what often, you know, keeps us up at night. Right. And that's often what, you know, wears and tears on you is the working condition. And so to see them address that by adding additional staff, that is huge. And, you know, I, I, I really applaud Local 89 for doing that because, of course, with any contract, there's give and take, right? And it's possible maybe they could have gotten a little something else, you know, in exchange for that. Uh, but they made it a priority to, you know, enhance the working conditions of their members and, and make everybody safer and, and better off. And I think that was great. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think I think that too often uh, unions really do prioritize uh, wages and health care to the detriment, which, you know, obviously these are important yeah. things, right? Wages and health care, very important. But um, there is really not enough emphasis placed on time off from work, right? Uh, on winning freedom from the boss. And, and winning appropriate staffing levels. And that's something we see, you know, a lot from nurses who have been fighting for appropriate staffing levels and nurse to patient ratios. Uh, and we see it with teachers unions across the country, not in Alabama, unfortunately, uh, but we see it, you know, in other places where class size limits and, uh, you know, case, si case size limits for uh, special education and other kind of specialty teachers. Those things are huge. And uh, you know, unions should not shy away from those those areas because uh, I, I agree with you. Sometimes we, we put too much emphasis on the bread and butter pay and benefits, and we don't really take a look at the holistic process of what it means to be that worker in that job every day. Yeah. Have we got uh, Lee Harris in the Zoom? Um, I don't believe so. Right. Um, not yet, not yet. We'll go ahead and hit this other story. Um, and there's just, we're just racking up the good news. This I didn't realize this when I was uh, putting all this together, but here's another good, and this one is also out of Kentucky. Uh, Governor Andy Bashir vetoed an anti-union bill uh, that came out of the legislature that was much like the Florida anti-union bill that we talked to McKenna Schuler about a couple of weeks ago that would... Um, prohibit automatic dues deduction for most public sector unions. And I believe 
I believe that there is uh, that there was also a, a bit in there about um, about some some stuff uh, about decertifying the union in that Kentucky bill, but I'm not sure. Uh, but yeah, Governor Andy Bashir vetoed it uh, in stark contrast to what we're going to see out of Florida, uh, where if that legislation gets out of the legislature, it will very quickly be signed by a governor, Ron DeSantis. And so, uh, love to see that out of, love to see that out of, out of Kentucky where, uh, the governor is not trying to, uh, you know, trying to attack, uh, public servants. Right. And, you know, their previous governor, the Republican that was up there, uh, did do a DeSantis style, you know, war on unions and it clearly has backfired in Kentucky, uh, because there's obviously some, pushback against that anti-union uh movement i say movement loosely it's you know it's not a genuine social movement um but you know and i just want to say right here that a lot of times on the show uh you know we are very critical of both political parties uh you know we are critical of the democrats and i think for good reason uh because if you're looking at politics through the lens of what it what it means to be a working class person in this country or in this state i think you you can see that both parties fall short uh and both parties have failed working class people to varying degrees right that's not to say that there isn't a difference and i think this is an illustration of where there is a difference it is better that in kentucky they have a democrat as their governor than the alternative and and that's going to result in this stupid bill being vetoed. And, and, you know, that's something to celebrate. So, you know, I don't want to ever give off the impression that, you know, I don't see that there is some difference. Uh, we can all see that there are some differences. You know, maybe it's not enough differences. And the truth is, I don't know a, a ton about Governor Bashir's, but I imagine I have some pretty different politics than he does. Uh, to to put it mildly, but uh, that's that's important to have a movement that can can push and bend uh you know state government closer to our, to our interest, and so uh, shout out to Kentucky for for being able to do that to uh, defeat that bill and you know keep keep the winds of coming in Kentucky. And we do, uh, I do believe we have Lee in the Zoom. Uh, let me double check that. Yes, yep, right we here. do. So, awesome. Yeah, so um, Lee Harris is a staff writer at the American Prospect. In 2020, she co-founded New York Focus, which is an investigative news site on New York politics. Prior to that, she was editor of the Independent Newspaper at the University of Chicago. Lee, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here on the Valley Labor Report. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan. Oh, well, very good. I'm a big fan of uh, the work that you do over at the American Prospect. Uh, the American Prospect is definitely, you know, one of the one of the better places for national uh, national news. I, I like what I see out of there. Yeah. If you if you're interested in a magazine, this should be on your short list. Like you, you should check out that publication. They're, they're putting out great work every week. Seriously. Yeah. So you have a piece that. Uh, you know that and we've been tracking some of this but but you did a really good job of, of highlighting a local story that shows 
exactly what this is meaning in um, on the ground. And, and that story is about the lack of protections and the lack of enforcement in the CHIPS Act in particular, but also the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think that lack of protections actually made uh, Bernie Sanders one of the lone votes against the CHIPS Act. Is that right? I think that's right. Yep. Yeah. And, and and maybe to go a little, well, go ahead. No, 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 no you go. Um. Maybe I'll, I'll give a little background on why I got into this story to begin with. So my story looks at the new TSMC chips facility that's being built in Phoenix. Um, and to give, before we get into the labor politics of it, just some background on what's going on. This is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, which is building a huge, what they call a fab, a chips uh, factory in Phoenix. And context is the U.S. obviously wants to onshore manufacturing of computer chips, these really crucial parts to basically all electronics. And TSMC is based in Taiwan, and it's super worried that China could prevent it from producing or exporting chips in a future military conflict or blockade. So this is seen as a, a key kind of national security project. And, um, and the campus that they're building is enormous. It's almost two miles by one mile, the, the entire campus, there are going to be several fabs there. And it's a $40 billion development uh, that's expected to get a pretty big cash infusion from the CHIPS Act. And it's coming, it's being built in Phoenix on top of already a really hot construction labor market between residential construction and then also um, some new, uh, new building from the Inflation Reduction Act, including a lithium battery plant. So I kind of thought, okay, Arizona is an old right to work state. How are creative labor leaders taking advantage of those conditions to build up union density in a place where it's been really decimated? And in my view, they should be able to since taxpayer money is being spent on these programs and Biden's advertising them as, you know, creating good union jobs. That's his line at every speech that he gives at every ribbon cutting about these new projects. So I was really shocked when I talked to Aaron Butler, who's president of the Building Trades Council down in Arizona, and a couple other labor leaders who said, yeah, this should be a, a, a moment for huge investment in apprenticeship programs and workforce training. Uh, but unions are facing a lot of uncertainty about whether they'll even be asked to be on these projects because TSM, they, they've, they've talked to TSMC. TSMC has, uh, first of all, refused a project labor agreement, but also has been pretty cold and anti-union in their dealings with um, with the building trades, which again has surprised them simply because it's been hard to get enough workers to staff projects of these size. So unions feel like they should be brought in as partners on these projects. So I'll pause there, but I think uh, what I really want to get into is, um, is the conditions out at the plant itself, because not only, you know, there, there's obviously a kind of like moral case for why they should be using union labor, but I was struck by the fact that um, it seems like it's the conditions are tough enough that the project's actually being delayed by the fact that they're using pretty inexperienced non-union wow. subcontractors who have made pretty elementary mistakes. Wow. Yeah. I, I and and you know just to emphasize that you mentioned in your speech in, in your uh, article that actually Biden's sales pitch at this fab. <laughs> emphasize the importance of quote hiring union folks. So he's actually like 
at this site, you know, where we're talking about, oh, they're not using union union labor, talking about the importance of hiring union people to do this. And, and uh, you know, the importance of hiring union folks, I, you know, you mentioned that there's a, there's a moral dimension to that of like, we want people who, in particular, when we're investing as a public, uh, we want to be kind of kind of a model employer, right? We want uh, to set the standard for the private industry in terms of wages, benefits, and working conditions, um, instead of our tax dollars funneling and driving a race to the bottom among construction workers. But also, there is actually a real practical, um, you know, small c conservative case for using union labor and and in, in in that actually when you use union labor with their experienced uh their experienced journeymen their long apprenticeship programs you're going to get better quality work you're going to finish on time you're going to finish on or under budget and that's and you're saying that's not happening here that's right. So, uh, and this is from speaking to workers on the job right now, some of whom didn't want to be identified, but also to to labor leaders in the region who did. Um, they are relying on pretty much anyone they can get at this point because there is this, um, because it, it's just an enormous project, but that includes a bunch of non-union subcontractors. Um, and for that reason, there have been a number of really ugly injuries, safety shortcuts described to me, and then, yeah, mistakes that have just slowed down the project. So to give you a couple examples, um, I've heard from a couple of folks about a really grisly injury in which there was a worker who was grinding with an eight inch grinder on pipe and he removed the guard, the grinder got away from him and his leg got, his thigh got cut down um, all the way down to the bone in a really horrible injury. Um, in another case, a 20 inch piece of carbon steel was dropped off a crane and broke a guy's femur. And to, to just to give an example of the way in which um, mistakes can slow down projects, uh, there's a there's a non-union subcontractor on site that's now pretty notorious that was um, that I was told was te pressure testing 72 inch pipe that they had installed. So like really big pipe that you can you know, stand up in. Um, they they're testing it. They go to drain the pipe and they forget to vent it. Um, so uh, with so so. 110 feet of this enormous piping collapsed, it like um, uh, collapsed in itself and and destroyed the structural supports. And this this required a lot of um, uh, backpedaling and, and it, it delayed um, uh, the delivery of that project. And now if you ask union workers, um, they'll say that's first year apprentice stuff. <laughs> you learn very early on that if you're draining big piping, um, you have to vent it so that you don't create a, a um, pressure, um, low pressure area. But um, that's the kind of thing that is a real setback if you're using inexperienced, untrained workers. And that's how unions are making the case for themselves on this site. Do, do you have an idea of how long it set the project back or how much money that mistake cost? No, I wish I knew. It's tough to get... Um, uh, I, I should actually ask for an estimate, um, but no, I think there are beyond those kinds of specific errors, though, it seems like there are more general kind of coordination problems between a lot of the subcontractors working on this site. And, and I get, so to put this in wider, like political context, I think it's, it's kind of ironic that it, um, 
that the site is having these problems because we hear all the time about, um, I think the main criticism of the CHIPS Act has been, or a big one has been from, from liberals, I mean, from a certain segment of Democrats has been chips are a national security concern. We need to stand up these facilities as quickly as possible and labor and environmentalists and people who want kind of special things attached, you know, special regulations attached to these plants are just slowing them down. I mean, including Ezra Klein. You mentioned Ezra Klein in your piece as one of these people that's like, oh, you know, I don't know. Maybe the American worker has it too good. Uh, Maybe it's kind of a... (laughs) Right, exactly. There's this whole meme out there that labor is way too powerful in the United States and unions with all of their political clout that they're throwing around are going to slow down these projects. And what was was surprising to me is that... um, uh, one of their main critiques has been that the Biden administration has written all in all of these requirements into the laws, requirements to use union workers or to provide childcare in order to get female workers on the job. Now, we can debate whether or not it would be a good idea to include those requirements. I personally think there's a good case for it. But the fact of the matter is the law didn't write in those requirements. The way it's structured is the Commerce Department says, we're offering um, what will ultimately be billions in dollars in subsidies for these types of projects. You come to us and tell us what your labor plans are. So they do request a plan. They say, um, tell us your workforce development plan. Tell us if you're planning on using a project labor agreement. Um, And tell us, by the way, if there's childcare facilities, affordable childcare facilities near um, the project site that you're planning on because um, we think that makes it easier for female construction workers to participate on the site. But mm-hmm. it doesn't require any of those things. It asks companies <laughs> to tell them um, what they're doing and takes it into consideration. So it's it's they're like nice to haves. <laughs> they're mm-hmm. they're by no means requirements that are going to hold up projects for companies that decide not to do them. That's just wild. That's, uh, you know, and this and, and, and these complaints, you know, I, I know Ezra Klein and, and there's some, you know, it's not to say that he hasn't done any good work, but he, he his his um, the thing that he puts out is like, I'm like a numbers guy. Right. I'm like a facts and figures and numbers guy. And so the idea that he would put forward that, oh, there are all these onerous regulations when that's just flatly not true is is really wild to me. And then it gets published in the New York Times. And I think the to like zoom out a little bit from this one project in Phoenix, um, the bigger critique by Ezra Klein, who I think, by the way, is a, a really smart um really smart kind of critic um, and broadly thinks of himself as being on the left and an interesting guy, but but he and others, their critique has been basically, why is it so hard to build things in America? Why is it Mm. so costly to build a mile of public transit? Why does it take so long to get, you know, housing built in big cities? And I think there's a grain of truth to that. Like it, it is really expensive to build all sorts of public infrastructure, um, in the U.S., and there are, and he's raising really smart questions about why, um, why building can be slow and tough, and there are all these roadblocks. But I think it's misleading to lay all the blame at the feet of number one unions, and then also environmentalists and other people who want um, review of projects. Partly because, I mean, just thinking about labor, um, 
Europeans, Europe builds public transit and, and housing, for example, at a fraction of the cost that mm. we build in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and has much stronger and better paid unions right. um, and, 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 and also much denser cities. So, um, so I think there are um, better ways to explain the cost overruns on American projects than just blaming unions. Especially when unions aren't actually the ones constructing, doing most of the construction. Like unions are just simply, you know, like in this project, unions by and large are just simply not present. There's some, some unions have been able to play some people, but by and large, this is being the TSMC fabs are being created, being constructed by non-union firms. And, and one of the things that you mentioned was, was that there are mistakes that are causing project delays. And we actually saw that, uh, just down the street here in Decatur, uh, the United Launch Alliance, they build um, rockets for, you know, sending payloads to the International Space Station here in Decatur. And they are doing an expansion. And the president or the former president of the union for the machinists there tried to get ULA to uh, at least allow our local union uh, construction trades, uh, trade unions to bid on the project, just just allow them to bid, just see what it would cost. And ULA wasn't interested. They hired some out-of-state non-union contractor, and they have the they put up the frame of the thing, you know, the steel frames. And then a big windstorm came the other day, and it blew the whole thing down. And so now they're having to start over. And it's like, and so the iron workers, you know, took a picture of it and did a little victory lap on Facebook, saying, "Oh, you know, this is what you get." But. <laughs> So it's just, it, it's really, but it is, you know, it's a disappointing thing to see that kind of stuff. That's money wasted, time wasted, uh, you know. Yeah. Um, I was going to mention that it's it's not all doom and gloom. I think there are um, uh, positive signs on the horizon uh, in some of these jobs that are being created. Um, Lyuna, the laborers union, is building a new $6.5 million training center outside Phoenix, mm -hmm. Uh, just even though they haven't, you know, they would have loved to have a project labor agreement or a couple um, giving them more certainty that, that you know, once they train up these workers, the jobs are going to be available, but they have decided they think it's going to be a hot labor market for the next several years in that region. And they want, um, want union laborers to be competitive, which I think is really right. exciting. And we're going to see similar moves from other unions. And um and I think in general, the scale of investments we're seeing are just, mm -hmm. um, even if companies fight them the entire way, ultimately, um, there's really high demand for um, a lot of uh, labor in these regions. And so unions are going to end up taking um, some of those jobs and, and using that as a foothold. And they have been able to win some votes at the Phoenix City Council, right? Right, exactly. So um, they had this kind of um, surprise victory, um, which is going to um, in which the city council, the progressive members of the city council, and then the the one most right wing member uh, kind of surprisingly sided with them on a vote to raise uh, the pay for workers on city construction jobs to prevailing wages in the region. Um, so this gives um Union unions that pay prevailing wage um, a much fairer bite at these mm -hmm. city construction jobs. Um, 
And it, it um, yeah, I think they, Phoenix did that and several other cities in Arizona, um, Tucson and others are now considering similar um, prevailing wage ordinances. So we could see a whole wave of those kinds of um, rulings. And it, and it matters a lot. I mean, city, this is, this just, just applies to city funded development and it actually, it doesn't apply to residential construction, but it's mm. you know, federal, uh, it's, it's municipal building projects. But um, Phoenix has grown so quickly over the past couple of years, and there's so much um, backfill and sewage and um, uh, other infrastructure, water treatment, streets, like there, there's so much um, city construction work to be done because of that recent growth that unions are really, really bullish on the next five, of six, five or six years. And now they're going to be, you know, receiving fair wages over that right. period. Yeah, that that'll be great, and and so you know, with their they obviously have some amount of support and and relationships with uh, you know local politicians. Is there any um, is there any uh, you know reason to believe that that maybe over the next year or so they'll be able to make some headway with TSMC on uh, this construction site, or are they? mostly just setting their sights on, um, you know, city construction and maybe trying to get a foothold in residential construction and you know, writing off TSMC as a lost cause? No, I think they're um, they're really going to be fighting for more jobs at TSMC, given the scale of the project and the fact that it's, it's, it's you know, likely to receive huge taxpayer funding. And I think um, the Biden administration and federal politicians have way more sway here than hmm. um, than you might think, given that this is their baby. Like they they passed legislation aimed at standing up a couple of fabs in in um, you know at Intel and my through Intel Micron TSMC. There's a handful of companies. The Biden administration has spent many hours in the room with the executives at these companies. If they make if there's enough pressure from labor and if the administration makes it a priority um uh it seems to me they can easily negotiate those hmm. conditions so it's a matter of um uh sort of unions keeping up pressure and uh the biden administration hearing that pressure and delivering the the union jobs that they keep promising from your lips to god's ears lee harris <laughs> staff writer at the american prospect is there anything else that you think folks ought to know about this story before we let you go I think we covered it. But the one other thing I'd say is that I'm super interested in this question of of, of whether the administration is actually delivering the union jobs that they're promising. So mm. I, I'm always looking to talk to workers, especially um, in the South, about the kinds of conditions they're seeing. So, um, you know, hit me up at, at um, lharris at prospect.org or my phone number, which is on my um on my site at the Prospect website, and I'd love to hear what people are kind of seeing on the ground. And you Excellent. can follow her on Twitter at Lee underscore Harris with three E's, L-E-E-E -E -E underscore Harris on Twitter.com. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Thanks. Appreciate Bye -bye. it. Bye-bye. All right, folks. Like I said, that was Lee Harris, uh, staff writer at the American Prospect. Check out her work. Really great. And uh, the publication is great as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, very glad to to follow them every week. I get their in, uh, emails in my inbox, and there's always you know great reporting coming out. Yeah, for sure. So um, <clears throat> we had uh, here's another quick hit um, from out of North Dakota. 
North Dakota lawmakers, you know, there was this, there was, uh, for about a week, free school lunch was in the, um, you know, it was in the news really heavily, uh, you know, a debate about whether or not we ought to just give children lunch right. at school. And we even talked a little bit about, uh, you know, uh, a new bill proposed in Congress that would not necessarily do that, but come closer to that. Right, right. And, and you know, it seems to us to be a very reasonable thing, <laughs> a very reasonable thing uh, to just give children food when they are under the care of the government. Uh, seems like a good thing to do. Uh, <laughs> it would not cost very much money at all. But <clears throat> some uh, Republicans uh, do not have that opinion. And they think that uh, it is important to have children understand that there's no such thing as a free lunch and that, you know, they need to earn their own way. And we don't need to instill a perpetual childhood in uh, these children. So they voted down a free school lunch bill in North Dakota a few weeks ago. And uh, last week, just... 10 days after shooting down that bill to provide free lunch to low-income students, the North Dakota Senate approved legislation to give lawmakers more money for meal reimbursements. Wow. <laughs> How slimy <laughs> they're can giving, you get? They're giving themselves free lunches, but not children. Uh, the legislation increases... According to KFYR-TV, the legislation increases reimbursements for state employees, including lawmakers, during interim legislative meetings from $35 a day to $45 a day. So, uh, uh, and, and just for the record, it doesn't cost $45 a day to feed children in schools. Uh, I don't even think it would cost $10 a day, which is the increase. It's an increase in $10 right. from $35 to $45. I don't think it would cost $10 to feed a child both breakfast and lunch, right? Isn't it something? What is a... It's a couple bucks. Yeah. A couple bucks. Well, it's a couple bucks, actually, if you buy the meal as a student. How much right. does it actually cost to produce? Like a dollar? Yeah, somewhere in that range. It's, yeah. So, um, and so this they is get a pretty absurd... $10 more per day... You think about that. You could feed 10 children for the lunch, for the increase... Of the lunch reimbursement for every one of these lawmakers. Right. right. Wild. Yeah, I mean, that is just, to me, so insulting. You know, that's insulting to everyone, regardless of their politics or, you know, partisan affiliation. The idea that children don't deserve a meal, but you do as a legislator, as a politician, uh, you need to up your meal allowance. $45 a day. And also, like, how many of us would love to have $45 to go spend on lunch? Um, because that's not the average worker. You know, a $45 meal is a, a luxury for most of us. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a real slap in the face. And I hope the folks of North Dakota really hold those, you know, hold their feet to the fire about this and don't forget about this. Don't, don't forget their priorities. Uh, and, you know, again, just for the record, it is a good thing to feed children. It is a good thing to have free school meals, uh, breakfast, lunch. There are supper programs and, and those are very essential. 
because the, the reality is in this country and in this state that many of our children rely on school to have nutrition. Without school meals, uh, they may not have a hot meal that day. You know, and so that's important on a moral level, just a, a basic moral foundation that children should be fed and taken care of. Uh, it's important on an academic level because hungry kids don't learn, uh, not at the same level as kids who are well-fed. Um, it's important from an economic you know, standpoint. Uh, it actually just makes more sense economically to provide free meals to, to all involved. Um, and there are opportunities there to, to partner with local farmers and you know, have community partnerships there. It's just a, a shame that they would move in that direction, you know, while, you know, there is at least conversation nationally about school meals for all. Uh, and like I said, we mentioned last week, I guess it was, or week before, the Healthy School Meals for All uh, bill that's been put out in Congress. It wouldn't exactly provide free meals to every single student, uh, but it would get us a lot closer to that. Um and, and so that's the, the direction we need to move in, not the direction of North Dakota, where we reject meals for ch children and increase reimbursement rates for politicians. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> let's see. Adam, do you want to talk about the... Um, we talk about uh, what's going on with yeah, Apple. Yeah, what's going on in... Yeah, let's talk about what's going on with Apple. Yeah, so I uh, did have a little bit of an update from the CWA that they put out recently. Uh, Apple has escalated its anti-union campaign, firing five workers at its country club plaza store in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, so this is a southern story. Uh, on Tuesday, March 28th, CWA filed unfair labor practice charges with the National Labor Relations Board to contest those illegal terminations and the ongoing intimidation of workers at Apple's Memorial City store in Houston. Last May, C the CWA was forced to abandon an election in Atlanta in the face of daunting union busting by Apple. In June, the very first Apple store went union with workers in a Baltimore store organizing with the machinist. Uh, so before I get to the, the pre full press release here from the CWA about this, I do want to mention that, uh, Apple has its Alabama connection through Tim Cook, who is, I believe, the CEO, um, of Apple. I'm not sure what other titles he may hold, uh, but he's an Alabama native. Really? Uh, yes. I did not know that. Uh, I'm mm. feeling... Now you're making me question myself, and I should <laughs> you should probably Google that to okay. confirm. <laughs> yes, he is from Mobile, Alabama. Okay. I knew I didn't make that up. Uh, all right. How's that for some live fact-checking, y'all? Um, so, yeah, Tim Cook is uh, running Apple. He's from Alabama, and so occasionally we'll get these articles from the Alabama media about, you know, high-profile Alabamians. And... Um, I don't know. I, I, as an Alabamian, I'm curious why this high-profile Alabamian uh, is intent on union busting. Why? Why are you busting the union organizing drives in your stores uh, when you're an extremely profitable corporation? Uh, you've got it made. 
you're one of the most successful corporations in the history of the world. And you can't let some folks organize in your retail stores. You got to go intimidate folks in Houston, Texas. You're going to go fire some folks in uh, Kansas City, Missouri. It's just ridiculous. Back to the CWA. Uh, as I said, they filed two unfair labor practice charges with the NLRB on behalf of the Apple retail workers in Kansas City and Houston who have been fired and have faced intimidation on the job for exercising their right to organize. This is the first ULP filed by CWA against Apple for the unlawful termination of workers for union organizing. The charges allege that Apple illegally fired five workers at the Country Club Plaza store in Kansas City and that some of the fired workers were forced to sign a release of all claims in exchange for a meager severance package. Now, last month, the NLRB ruled that employers cannot require broad severance agreements that prevent former employees from speaking out against the union busting and other issues they experienced on the job. Uh, evidently, Apple did not get that memo. At the Memorial City store in Houston, Apple workers were individually interrogated regarding their support of the union, promised improved working conditions if they declined to support the union, and threatened with, work threatened with worsening workplace conditions if they continued to organize. Workers were also disciplined in retaliation for their continued support of the union. Apple management said I was fired for a typo in my timesheet that I had documented and tried to correct. Yet it is clear the real reason I was fired was for exercising my right to organize and win a protected voice on the job. Apple then attempted to silence me by having me sign a release in order to receive my severance package. No one working at Apple should be interrogated, intimidated, or silenced for trying to organize and win our fair share, said Delight Zhang, former Kansas City, Missouri Apple retail worker. Since Apple retail workers began organizing a little over a year ago, the company has chosen the low road, retaining the notorious union-busting firm Littler Mendelssohn and launching a coordinated national union-busting campaign. Workers at multiple stores have experienced the same types of interrogation, intimidation, and attempted silencing. In response, CWA has filed numerous ULPs against the trillion-dollar company for violating its workers' rights to organize for better pay and working conditions. CWA has now filed ULPs alleging retaliation against worker organizing by Apple at retail stores in Atlanta, New York, Oklahoma City, Houston, and Kansas City. I'm going to pause there to point out, um, I notice a southern theme there. Uh, one, two, three, four, five cities, and four out of the five are arguably in the South. You know, is that an indication of Apple's behavior and attitude towards the South? Does Apple think that because we're the South and these are right-to-work states that uh, it's the Wild West and you get to behave however you please? Claude Cummings, Jr., vice president of CWA District 6, had this to say. From Starbucks to Apple, the union-busting playbook used by unimaginably wealthy co corporations is always the same. Isolate, intimidate, fire, and silence. It is clear that Apple's senior management team does not respect their workers' legally protected right to organize and negotiate for better pay and working conditions. Apple has chosen to continue to break the law, so we will continue to hold the company accountable because no corporation is above the law. 
Apple's attempt to interfere with worker organizing is only strengthening the resolve of workers to win a seat at the negotiating table. Again, that was Claude Cummins Jr., Vice President of CWA District 6. CWA recently won reinstatement and compensation for back pay and damages for Seattle-area Verizon wireless worker Jesse Mason, who was illegally fired by the company for union organizing activities. So, uh, really hope to see more successes like the one for Jesse Mason. Hopefully they can get these workers who were terminated back uh, with back pay and damages. But just a, you know... Really shameful union busting by Apple. It's sad to see it. Uh, there's no need in it. The money that they're spending doing their union busting could be spent settling the contract, right? They could just sit down with these folks, recognize what they're trying to do. And, and that's, let me, I just have to say that that is an option, right? The company could choose to just recognize the workers' organizing efforts. Whenever you see these contentious battles, whenever you see these union campaigns that are being uh, attacked by the company, know that they have that option on the table. They do not have to take the low road. They choose to take the low road. And in some cases, they would rather spend more money doing that than if they had simply worked with the union. And that's that's where you see a, a priority over power, of power over profits at, at some point. Um, they would rather crush the workers organizing, even if it costs them more money to do so. Uh, and, you know, obviously a corporation such as Apple has resources that are virtually unlimited. Uh, so it's a testament to the workers that they are fighting back against such a behemoth of a corporation. Uh, so shout out to the CWA, sending all our uh, support and solidarity with y'all as y'all fight these battles in Kansas City and Houston and Atlanta and across the South, across the country. Um, so do you want to hit this bit about... Uh... Culture wars and vouchers in Alabama, or you want to save that for next week, maybe? You know, I think I want to save that for uh, next week. And part of that is because I want to see what else comes out about uh, this divisive concepts bill in Alabama. So I guess, you know, maybe just as a preview, uh, we do plan to talk about the way in which culture wars have impacted our schools um, there was actually a, a new study came out um, this year from uh, UCLA, I believe it was. Uh, Professor John Rogers came out with a study called Educating for a Diverse Democracy, the Chilling Role of Political Conflict in Blue, Purple, and Red Communities. And so what John Rogers did is take a look at how these cultural war topics and this divisive politics is actually trickling into the classroom. Um, and one of the other things they've looked at is these so-called anti-CRT bills, uh, right? There's been hundreds of them in the last couple of years across the country. Uh, and we've seen it popping up every year here in Alabama over the last couple of years. It is back. Uh, it's called divisive concepts. Um, and so that's something we want to take a look at uh, and, and examine a little bit closer uh, and, of course, the way that connects to the push for vouchers. 
Uh, and we talked with our, our main show guest, Griscom, this morning about vouchers in Texas. And the bill that is being proposed in Alabama works very similarly. Uh, it, in fact, may be looser in terms of what you can spend the money on. Uh, but it's no coincidence that classroom teaching is under attack as they push for privatization. It's no coincidence that the integrity of teachers is under attack as they push for privatization. Um, and, and one of the, the concerning things there is the way in which fear is used to restrict intellectual freedom and to restrict the, the democratic impulses of public education. Uh, so that's, that's, I guess, a preview of, of this sort of conversation we, we plan to have there about culture wars, the vouchers and privatization schemes, and how those are intersecting in Alabama. All right. Well, I'll be looking forward to that. Uh, and with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Appreciate everybody uh, tuning in. Uh, just one more reminder, we do have the North Alabama Area Labor Council's barbecue at Bronze Spring Park on April 22nd. That's right. Next um, Saturday. So all of you locals, <clears throat> we want to see yeah, you. Yeah, we want to see you. Um, and uh, All you Birmingham folks. If come see the, us tomorrow. Come see us tomorrow. April 16th at the CWA Union Hall in Birmingham from 1 to 4 p.m. Uh, you can buy a ticket for that. The barbecue next weekend is free uh, with the Labor Council. Um, but if you want a ticket to the fundraiser, uh, you can get that at tvlr.fm slash fundraiser. 100% of the proceeds go to us. If you do not have the funds, we do have a donor that has purchased 10 tickets uh, that we can give away for free. So um, if you would like to be there just to hang out with some cool folks tomorrow, uh, but you don't have the funds or you don't feel like you can justify the expense, then um, send us an email and claim one of those free tickets. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. Uh, really appreciate Haley and Josh with the Youth Caucus of the Democratic Party in Alabama for, for doing this. Um, you know, they they were interested in helping us, and, and I, I really appreciate that a lot. Uh, we're happy to do live in-person events like that. Um, so if there's ever uh, any ideas you have, feel free to pitch them. Uh, if there's ever any events or conferences going on that you think we might need to, to show up to, let us know. Uh, we will be attending uh, a few different events over the course of the spring and the summer, we're going to be uh, at the Building Trades Council's conference this summer. We're going to be at an Iron Workers conference. Um, uh, I'll, I'll be speaking to some high school students about unions and the history of unions and their job opportunities available to them. So, uh, yeah, we're trying to expand and we're trying to kind of just expand our outreach and, and talk to folks in different uh, areas and in, uh, in different ways because that's what it takes, right? Just having these conversations and building relationships with folks so that we can strengthen the labor movement. Uh, and we believe doing that requires our own media. So that's why we do what we do at the Valley Labor Report. So really appreciate everyone who tuned in today. I uh, hope everyone has a great weekend. All power to the workers. <laughs>